0: Indeed, today is the day. I'm hoping that uh, you are taking the headline news of the day as provocation for your prayer life. I'm hoping that every time you see one of those yellow school buses today and it slows you down, uh, you pray for those little kids, you pray for those families, you pray for those teachers, you pray for that bus driver, and you settle down and you say to yourself, you know, thanks be to God, I live in a place where um, public education is available to everyone, and let me be a person who positively engages in that in my community uh, making sure that all of those, uh, all of those children are not only well cared for, but they're safe, not only in the school, but, uh, to and from, uh, school. So, uh, don't, don't, don't grow impatient today, uh, with the fact that you have to stop for school buses. <clears throat> uh, don't, don't take it as an annoyance. If it is an annoyance, get up earlier, go to work an hour earlier and avoid the school traffic. Uh, in, in that way, you would be getting out of the way. So really, you know, this is another way to view it. It's not the school bus that's in the way. You know, you're, you're clogging up traffic, too. There you go. I was up an hour uh, earlier, so you could be, too. Like, right? All right. But in this hour, you get the joy of hearing Nicole Phillips, who brings us another kindness story today. You can find her online at NicoleJPhillips.com. Welcome back.
1: Carmen, you are a joy. Your 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 shift in perspective is always enlightening, and I love it.
0: I love that you think it's enlightening. Other people find it annoying, but there you go. <laughs>
1: You and I can be the Pollyannas of the world. It's all good. (laughs) Hey, I saw this. I met this guy, a young man last week in Iowa, and he had uh, short hair, but he had this one long piece. Have you ever seen that in the back of the head? I have. I I call it a rat tail. Yeah. Yeah. I wish Mm -hmm. there was a better name because I just that kind of icks me out. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I was talking to him and I said, so what's up with that? What is what is? When did you start growing it? What's the significance? You know, I thought there's got to be a story behind this. And he said back in 2004, his uncle who was in the army was deployed overseas. So he and his cousin decided to grow mullets. And so they grew their mullets out for a year or however long. And then when the uncle got back, um, the cousin shaved everything off. But but this, this young man, Austin, decided to leave the rat tail there. So it was in honor of his uncle who had served in the US military. Well, I thought that was so cool. And and then I started thinking, 2004, how old was he in 2004? He was five when he started growing that mullet for his uncle. How beautiful is that?
0: Wow. I what? don't know, did we just, yeah, okay. I, well, I don't know. How do you respond to that?
1: I just thought that was really sweet. And I said, were you very close with your uncle? And he said, <clears throat> He said, yeah, you know, we 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 do a lot together, which led me to believe that his uncle was still around. So that was pretty special. But I thought, what a sweet young heart that that at five years old, he would decide to start growing this mullet. And then, you know, when he was six, seven years old, wanted to keep a piece of it. And here he is 20 years old and and still supporting someone he loves. And I thought that that's such beautiful kindness, isn't it? That is kindness. That is kindness.
0: Um, I, I love it. I love the way that you are able to um, find stories to bring us each week that just remind us of our own humanity and the various ways in which we can just respond to one another in love. Um, I, I love, in particular, uh, Nicole, your your willingness to just ask people questions and ask really good, open ended questions that provoke them to tell their story. So thank you for uh, training us all up in doing that and learning the learning the stories of courage and kindness that are out there today. Uh, we will uh, be back here with just a minute with Justin Gibbany from the And Campaign. You've been listening to Nicole Phillips. You can find her at NicoleJPhillips.com. We'll be right back. Joining me again today is Justin Gibney from the And Campaign. You can find him on Twitter at Justin E. Gibney. You can find the And Campaign at, at And Campaign. I encourage, encourage you today to go to And Campaign's Facebook page where Justin's got uh, a video posted, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, he does these things called Civic Updates where he is training us as Christians in the culture today to um, be people who also understand what's uh, what's happening in the culture and engage it from a Christian worldview. So that he calls that the Civic Update, and you can find uh, his latest video post of the Civic Update at the AND Campaign's Facebook page. So that is at AND, A-N-D, Campaign. Welcome back, my friend.
2: Hey, Carmen. Glad to be here.
0: So we are remembering um, really – maybe our nation's most tragic anniversary. It's a 400th anniversary. And it's the 400th anniversary of what?
2: Yeah, so it's the 400th anniversary of really the first slave ships arriving in Virginia in 1619. Uh, and so that first ship with uh, 20 or so, uh, um, I, I was going to say African Americans, but 20 or so or more Africans on it first came to the shores of America in
0: 1619. And when we think about um, the numbers of Americans today who are descendants of maybe not this first group who arrived, but certainly um, descendants of those who then subsequently arrived. How many, how many people in the United States are we talking about when we're talking about um, descendants of those who arrived as victims of the slave trade?
2: You know, I don't have the exact numbers, but we're we're talking about a lot of people who uh, did not come over here, whose ancestors did not come over here voluntarily uh, and Mm -hmm. who went through that uh, wicked institution, that demonic institution of slavery that split up families and that uh, really had an impact that's lasting today.
0: When we think about um, educating people about what happened 400 years ago, and then what continued to happen. I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazed, Justin, that, um, that when we're talking about how long this went on, um, we're not talking really all that far in our distant past in terms of when the last slave ships arrived here in America, far past the time when I think people um, imagine we were no longer engaged in such a thing.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. A lot of times when we talk about race, it is really we talk about it in a very ahistorical way. Uh we talk about it as it's as if it's so distant, you know, I uh that it could never have any impact on what we're doing today. But yet we don't talk about other issues like that. So when we talk about this country and the principles of this country and the spirit of this country, that can last from you know when this country first started. But for some reason, when we talk about the sins of the country, we don't want to consider that those may have lasting impacts as well. And so I think anytime you enter into a race conversation, it has to be within historical context. It has to be with the understanding that much of the things that are that happened back then still have an impact today because they just weren't that long ago. Um, we're still talking about, you know, four or five generations ago. Uh, and the economic, the social, the cultural and political impact of that is, is, is something that we're still dealing with.
0: So you and I um, have both looked at this piece that's posted at thegospelcoalition.org, and it's entitled, uh, and again, this is, there's, a, there's uh, quotes around this, so I don't want people thinking that I'm making up this headline, 20 and odd Negroes uh, are brought to Virginia, the 400th anniversary. When um, When we look at the diagram that's in this picture, when we talk about people as a shipment, Right. I mean, I—that that is language that we talk about human cargo. Um, today, we would be talking about human trafficking. That would be the language that we would be using today um, if we were going to talk about uh, looking back historically at the slave trade. And today, I mean, you get, you know, Christians immediately respond to human trafficking with one voice of condemnation. Like nobody thinks anybody should be trafficked. Like I, I, I see a I see a healthy Um, Insistence um, and a a rising concern among Christians about human trafficking today, Um, and yet I don't see the same level of understanding of the the slave trade as as you know for what it was human trafficking. They're described as human cargo, described as shipments, and we're talking about people made in the image of God. I I don't. Let's have a feelings conversation. When I use that language, how do you feel?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's tough because what I know is uh, that that, you know, those descriptions, that way of talking about people set the stage for what we've been going through in the race conversation that we're having now um, uh, all that time ago. Right. So it automatically dehumanizes the people that's that, you know, that that were on those uh, ships they auto automatically are lesser than your uh, any citizen that that might uh, get the respect and 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 just the understanding that uh, their suffering did matter. And so I think that's where it starts. It starts with that dehumanization, and it took us so very long, and in in many ways, it's still taking us time to get over that and to address people as fully human and to and to understand their pain, right? To understand the pain of people who have, you know, who have gone through uh, such terrible circumstances. We don't have to deal with that when we don't deal with the historical context. We don't have to deal with that when we uh, pretend that this was so far away. And I think that's what's happening. We just don't want to really deal with the fact that it's still, you know, that there are still issues. There are still uh, denominations and there are still companies that benefited from the slave trade, right, Uh, that, that, that reaped those benefits and so you have to really delve into it and and be willing uh to to deal with the the realities uh in order to really address it in a way that's going to be constructive
0: yeah and i and i don't think as i as i read this history i don't think that we can um deny the participation and place of um of christianity in in this conversation it's not uh they were intertwined. And we're talking about uh, the conquest of the people of Angola by the Portuguese. We're talking about colonization. We're talking about the arrival of Jesuit priests who then introduced Christianity to these people. Um, And we are talking uh, about people here uh, in Virginia in particular who were Christians. And so I I think that um, when we have these conversations, Justin, it's not... uh, it's in humility, and it's in an acknowledgment that Christians in that day didn't get it right. And we as Christians today um, have to acknowledge it for what it was and what it what it has produced within us um, as a people here in the United States of America. Justin Gibney and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, he is at AND Campaign, and you can check it out online. I encourage you to go to their Facebook page in particular at AND Campaign, where you can see the Civic Update. We'll be right back. Lately, really Put your hands Put your hands Continuing my conversation with Justin Giboney, uh You can find him at the AND Campaign. Uh, that's A-N-D. For those of you who uh, keep texting me, what am I saying? The AND, the AND, A-N-D, Campaign. Um, and so, Justin, let's remind people what the AND Campaign is in case they haven't heard every other conversation we've had.
2: Sure. So the End campaign is a Christian civic organization that's trying to help Christians engage politics in a more faithful way and the framework so we try to pro- provide Christians with a framework not necessarily tell tell them how to think on every issue or to tell them who to vote for but to give them a framework for how to think about politics in a more biblical way and that and that framework really comes from the compassion and conviction of the gospel uh too often we talk when we talk about politics we we think of some Christians being on the side of justice and compassion and other Christians being on the side of uh kind of moral order and conviction And when we read the gospel, we see that those two things are together, that love and truth go together, that compassion and conviction go together, and that justice and moral order come together. And that's really what the AND campaign means. It's not a love or truth conversation, a compassion or conviction conversation. It's a compassion and conviction. Uh, And and that's really what we've been trying to spread and just raise civic literacy among Christians and, and show Christians how to apply their values to the issue of the day
0: when um When we start to wade into conversations uh, related to race, when we start to wade into conversations related to the history of this country and people of color, um, I think one of the hardest barriers to overcome um, is that white people feel either attacked um, and defensive or um, so ashamed as to be unable to have an intelligent conversation about a way forward, and I'm reading this um, this Barna study research. Um, where do we go from here? Which asked practicing Christians and pastors what the church should be doing to bridge the racial divide in the United States. And you know, uh, Justin, that I feel like this is this is the concern where the church should be leading in the culture because you know we we are. We are people who recognize the inherent dignity of every human being created in the image of God, standing on equal footing at creation, standing on equal footing at the cross in need of salvation and standing on equal footing in the kingdom of heaven. So we ought to be the people who are leading the conversation, pressing into and leading the conversation about not just reconciliation in general, but racial reconciliation specifically, because in America, that's our specific, uh, you know, collective corporate sin. And we have clearly not dealt with it. But when I look at the research by Barna, um, I'm surprised that there's just a lot of people who don't think the church needs to repent of anything related to slavery and segregation, like only 16% of American practicing Christians, which is already a minority of people, right, say that the church needs to repent for Americans for America's history of slavery and segregation. Um, I and and only 24% of of African American practicing Christians indicated um that need. So it's not um uh it, help me out because if we don't see it as a sin of which the church was a participant and therefore needs to repent, it's really hard to press in in terms of the need for the church to lead the secular conversation on this topic.
2: Yeah, no that's that's good. I think I think the place to start is is really just awareness again, we go back into that history conversation. Do people actually know the history? and I don't think a lot of people really know the history uh, that I mean if you think about it hard enough it shouldn't be hard to kind of decipher, but uh, there are many churches in the South and another uh, otherwise that were funded with uh, money that came from slave labor um and that's that's historical that's not something that Justin is making up. so if we want to talk about it in a very practical and real sense. That's one place that we can start. But something else I'd like to address is just having Christians think about when we get defensive, when we get upset in these conversations, where is that coming from? And my, my guess would be that it's usually coming from a place of pride, right? It's, it's coming from a place of wanting to be seen as better than we are. Right. And so we all have many things that we should enter into conversations with humility because we're not pure, uh, because we don't have a narrative that is completely clean. But we always go into we often go into these conversations about race and other things wanting to come out of those and nobody being able to point the finger at us. Well, that's not exactly that's not exactly how it works. And I, I don't think. Jesus would go into those conversations trying to make sure that everybody knew that he wasn't at fault and that no blame could be placed on him. I think there's a better way to enter in those conversations. And I think the best way to enter in those conversations would be through self-examination. If you had to err on one side or the other, are you going to err on the side of really pretending that you're completely innocent? Or would you err on the side of saying, you know what, I may not even completely understand right now, But if there's anything I can do, if I had any involvement in this or if there's any way that I perpetuated this or uh, uh, through family or had any benefit from this, then I may want to repent. I may want to, you know, go out of my way to make sure that people understand that I know how wrong this was and that I'm going to do everything I can to commit myself to fixing it.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of at the stage of admitting I don't even know how wrong it was. (laughs) And so I still need – I mean, I just recognize I still need to learn more about the history and continue to be willing to, um, you know, to uncover more and more layers um, because I don't I don't even know how much um, pain and responsibility there is yet there. But I'm um, I'm humble enough to recognize not only my own personal need to repent, but um, but our collective need to to look at, examine, understand, repent of Um, And then move forward together into, uh, you know, into whatever positive possible future God has for us as brothers and sisters in Christ in this country. So, Justin, thank you, as Mm -hmm. always, for uh, being with us. Thank you for continuing to help us enter into and have these congregations, conversations. Um, Where do you want me to direct people online today?
2: Oh, you can always go. If you're on social media, you can go to at and campaign or you can go to andcampaign.org and you can get information and see some of our content that we put out uh, fairly regularly.
0: That's the one I like. All right. Andcampaign.org. Justin Gibney, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be right back. Thanks, Adam. All right, friends, next up, Peter Kapsner. I actually have a person who just texted this in. Um, We can be led astray by some religious leaders when the biblical view is misinterpreted. So this is a person writing in with gratitude for the viewpoint that we bring and the people that we bring uh, onto the show. Peter and I are actually going to talk next about another very high profile uh, Christian professional who has renounced the Christian faith and, um, uh, so we're going to talk about that. We talked last week about Joshua Harris, and this week we're going to be having a similar conversation. We've got a Hillsong uh, writer and worship leader who, you know, says, "Hey, I'm I'm no longer Christian." He's going to talk about uh, he talks about the loss of his faith, and Peter and I are going to talk about that um, as well as uh, the what's being described as the rural death spiral. Is your um, is your rural community different? maybe uh, in, in negative ways, different than it was when you were growing up. Um, and so we're going to talk about that and its impact on the United States of America and us as Christians. That's up next here with Peter Kapsner and me on Mornings with Carmen.
3: If your energetic little boy has become a terror or your sweet little girl is teetering on the brink of disaster, it's easy to lose hope. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When you're struggling with a wayward teen, it can feel like your whole world is turning upside down. Everything you've dreamed about has been dashed. It makes you feel like a failure. Well, over the last 40 years, my wife and I have spent countless hours with teens and their parents. We've seen God do some incredibly amazing things. And what I've learned is this, God is faithful. In the darkness, there is hope. Listen, you may feel like a complete failure today, but God still has a plan for your teen and your family, no matter how desperate the
2: situation may seem.
3: Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: is back in the house. Peter, welcome back.
3: Hey, thanks Cameron. Thanks for having me as usual.
0: Oh, thanks for being here. I uh, I enjoy our conversations. I want to have two of them today, and I want to lead with the conversation about rural America. We um it's easy to observe this like rural urban divide. We sometimes talk about it as like coastal versus the rest of the country divide. Um we sometimes talk about it as the the difference between elites and what some characterize as the rest of us. So um, I live in flyover country. So do you. Um, we live in places that are um, rural, but where there are also big cities. So you live in a rural, you know, in a in a rural part of America. However, the Twin Cities is obviously ginormous. I live um, near Nashville, Tennessee, uh, but I live in a rural part of the state, but obviously near, you know, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And so Um, We kind of you and I kind of live in um, uh, in both worlds. Tell me what you see happening uh, in rural America specifically.
3: Yeah, I think, Carmen, it's hard to uh, overestimate how different those two worlds really are. I was uh, heading out to uh, sort of one of those golf scrambles with my 19 year old son this last Friday and he was commenting. He said, you know, I really appreciate living in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities area he said we live close enough to the city but he said i find it fascinating dad that we can travel maybe 25 30 minutes outside of the twin cities and we are in an almost entirely different country i mean the the life in rural america is so different than the life in sort of urban America there is a substantial divide he was just commenting on the school that was there in this rural community where the golf tournament was and he said i wonder how far kids have to travel as the school probably draws from 35 45 sometimes 50 miles around just to have school as opposed to the school down the street in the urban community and uh, one of the other things we noticed and talked about and i think this is one of the most substantive differences is that people in rural communities and and i grew up in a rural community, my family was from a rural community and growing up in that environment, Carmen, I felt known. I felt part of a community. I felt uh, very much humanized and, and people knew my family. They knew me. They knew our backstories. We knew them, their family, their backstories. Neighbors were likely to look out for us as, as much as they, uh, us for them and in urban life, you know, it, it gets to be sort of dehumanizing. The pace is so different. There's such a mass of people. And that doesn't mean that urban life is all bad. It just means that there's a real difference between the community and the relational way of life of rural America versus sort of this bustling, busy, almost successful metric way of life in urban communities. And we are seeing the death of the rural community. We're seeing the death of these sort of relational environments that uh, can be, you know, there, there's some shortcomings to that, but it can be really. Good for the soul, but I know when my son and I were driving out there, it suddenly felt like we had space, we could breathe, we were we're part of something bigger than just ourselves. It was a really interesting experience.
0: So I'm looking at some um, some current research related to this. I mean, you know, our uh, uh, the experience that uh, that you and I have, and so we can like say, hey, we can point to it, and we can say, you know, I know this because of my own experience, but we can point to it on a larger scale: political and economic power has largely shifted to the cities and only 20 percent of the population for 46 million uh, people um, actually still live in what you would I would describe as the middle of America in rural communities. And so we're talking about um, a statistically small percentage of people who do enormously important things for everybody else. And so these barriers that uh, rural communities have in, you know, in education or in wealth or in access to health care ultimately affects everybody. Because I don't know if people are paying attention, but those 46 million Americans in the middle of the country are producing all of the food for everybody else. Right. Have they missed that? Have they missed the importance of farming?
3: Well, and I think that you just nailed it. And so this sort of cold, and it's still a pretty cold civil war we're experiencing as a country, but we, I think, can see some dividing lines being drawn here. And you see it in places like uh, Illinois and the idea that there's sort of this nascent, It's, it's. I don't think it's going to gain much traction, but there's this young movement of wanting to split off Chicago from the rest of Illinois, functionally creating a new state because The rest of Illinois is complaining, understandably so, that Chicago is dictating policy for all of Illinois, and they have the money, they have the voting power, they have the constituency to do that. We see some of these movements in California as well, and and to the extent that we divide from one another instead of working together, that's the point that, that you're making here is that even some of the technology of university life and urban centers is bleeding into rural America. And it's wreaking havoc on the traditional farming community where you almost have to have a computer programming degree as much as you have to have some sort of you know, historical understanding of how to work the land. You need almost both to be able to do it. And it's really driving the rural community out and creating a pretty big divide between the two sections of our country.
0: So I'm pro-ag. I think that if people listen to me for very long, they already know that. Um, I, uh, I'm i one of those people that thinks that every single one of us should have some dirt under our fingernails yes, for and sure. some, uh, you know, some muck boots somewhere close to the door. Yep. Um, and, and they should be used in our own little gardens, even if uh, if we can't have a big garden. So um, when you think about uh, the way that rural communities have changed, I I view the loss of the centrality of the church in those communities as a part of this conversation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. When we would travel to my parents' hometowns, which, again, was in central Minnesota, one of the things that always caught my attention, and, and they both grew up Catholic, was that we would go into these small towns. I mean, literally, Carmen, 100 people, 200 people, sometimes a couple thousand people, and what dominated the architecture of that little village or that little community it was the church. The church clearly had a central place in the life of the community and it's where the community gathered on the weekends. It's it's what kind of held everything together. And you referenced to me in a text off the air as well that the other sort of defining feature of any small town was the courthouse as well. And those two were meant to work hand in hand. When you look back at Martin Luther's theology, for example, he really had a two kingdom theology in which the church and the court were supposed to be standing side by side where the church gave the court the moral authority to then enact and execute the laws to keep a healthy community woven together. And the church was central to all of that and it, and it consumed most people's Sundays. I think there's a lot of listeners that we have, Carmen, that can that that remember life when we went to church in the morning, we maybe had some sort of meal together in the afternoon and then we had gathered together again in the evening and have church uh, in, in a smaller sort of context. We'd gather on Wednesdays. There's a real relational hub that revolved around the church, and we certainly don't see that much, if at all, in urban America.
0: All right, so this is a little shout-out to everybody that's out there that is tilling little, little, literal soil today in one way, shape, or form. And we just want to say thank you. Uh, I want to say thank you for um, the way in which you are cultivating within this culture All of the goodness and richness that each and every one of us requires. So, thank you for the harvest, not only of real food, but of real righteousness in your homes, in your hearts, in your communities, all across rural America today. Um, Maybe, uh, maybe Peter, what you and I should organize is a farminary instead of a seminary, (laughs)
3: like right? What we need is I love that idea. Like
0: right, we need the mobilization of farmers across America to actually help us retill the American soil, replant the seed of God's word in order that, you know, we might cultivate a harvest of righteousness uh, in the next generation.
3: I love that idea. We've got five kids at home, Carmen. And one of the things that my wife, Hallie, demands of them each day is that that they go outside and they get themselves dirty. And that is really, there's something about being connected to God's land that really matters in terms of keeping ourselves human and connected both with God and with one another. So I love the idea of a farming area. I'm going to quit my job at the seminary here later this afternoon.
0: All right, I'm, I'm with you. Sign me up. Sign me up. All right. Hey, Peter Capster and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to pivot topics. We've got another high-profile professional Christian who has renounced the Christian faith. We're going to talk about that um, and whether or not, uh, I don't know, whether or not we see a trend. We're going to unpack what this particular individual has said up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
3: Whatever you do, just don't look.
0: Peter Kapsner and I are, we have this ongoing conversation. We like to call it Fifty Shades of Truth. Um, And Peter, we have another high-profile professional Christian, this time uh, one of the writers from Hillsong, who says on social media, uh, I'm no longer a Christian, right? Uh, And so he regards Christianity as, quote, just another religion. Mm. Um, And he says, you know, I'm genuinely losing my faith, but it doesn't bother me. What bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now. I'm so at peace with the world. It's crazy. And I want to affirm that. It is crazy. Um, I, I want to, like, right? He's talking about yeah. nihilism. Yeah. What bothers me now is nothing. Um, I'm so happy now, which is totally not realism related to the world. And I'm so at peace with the world. Like, is that not just the superficial peace that passes itself off as something that it's not? Because isn't friendship with the world, entity with God? I mean, Isn't this literally crazy?
3: Yeah, boy, it is. And it's so discouraging, isn't it? I mean, I know for me, this doesn't speak entirely of Hillsong, of course. I know there's many songs that have been written through the Hillsong organization that have deeply affected me in some really beautiful and profound ways. So it's discouraging to see another high-profile leader basically say in kind of copycat fashion what Josh Harris said last week. And I think we're probably going to see more of this, right, Carmen, where the door opens and somebody says something like Harris did, and that's going to give other people in significant ministry sort of, I suppose, the courage, as it were, to do a similar thing, because that's what they're wrestling with. But to your point, in the biblical framework, things are judged by their rippling effect. Things are judged by their fruit. Things are judged by how they play themselves out. And so there may be sort of this cathartic moment somebody experiences by then finally saying out loud, I'm struggling with my faith, or I'm going to walk away, and now I'm so happy, and all of that. But give it some time. Right. I mean, it never works well to make friends with the world. It doesn't work well to live a life in which you're committed only to your own well-being and only to your own sense of what is going to satisfy you. And so play this out in the long game a little bit. And uh, there may be sort of this moment of, wow, I'm so at peace But at least from a biblical worldview, that's not going to end well at the end of the day. But what I find interesting, Carmen, in this, and I think it's the piece that I think then the church can reflect on, because I was a little bit disturbed, I have to confess, by some of the reactions of of some of the institutional church and some of the figures within the church saying things like, well, he's now a child of Satan, or he's now uh, maybe eventually he'll come back and all of that. And some of those things I think are worth wondering about. But I don't think that we should miss the point of something what he said in his post, where some of the reasons why he was walking away from the faith were some of the questions that he had. He said these sorts of things. How many preachers fall? Many preachers do, but no one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Well, not many around our world, at least as far as he can see, and nobody talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions in his mind? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. And and here's what I'll say, Carmen, is from... The fortunate perch at which I get to sit in university life is I get 50, 60, 70, sometimes 100 young people from a whole uh, amalgamation of evangelical churches around our region or even around our country. And I always ask them, write down the questions you have about our faith. Just write them down. You don't have to put your name on them. I want you to send them in to me and throughout the course of term, as we have time, we will address these different questions. And here's the thing. In every class that I've ever taught, those questions I just read of Marty Sampson, this worship leader from Hillsong, are the questions that the young people are asking. And I think it's really worth paying attention that instead of just dismissing people and saying, you know, they're basically stupid or idiotic from walking away from the faith— we need to sort of extend a, a loving reaction on one level, but I think it's an invitation to us to really address these troubling questions that just don't seem to get addressed terribly well and and cause people to then walk away from the faith. It's one reason I get it, but this is what really has my attention, is he's asking all the same questions that I've heard for the past 10 years in my classes.
0: Well, and when he asks over and over again, you know, no one talks about it or no one talks about it, no one talks about it, I'm thinking to myself, we talk about it all the time. Right. And so um he's clearly not listening to mornings with Carmen. Not, i mean, I mean I that might have been you know a little trite. But um uh my biggest concern maybe Peter is um this this sense that he has that uh that he is in a position to be the arbiter of all truth. Right. And he is in a position to be the arbiter of of what is true and what is real. Um, and so it's really an expression. What I want people to understand is this is an, an expression of autonomy. Yep. He is expressing um, his authority over the word of God, the church of Jesus Christ, um, his understanding of uh, of religion itself. Um, and if if we just wanted to look at one sentence and he says, you know, I could go, uh, I could go on, but I won't. And he says, unfollow if you want, which obviously anybody who has literally been following this man in terms of his Christian leadership clearly needs to unfollow him. But he's talking here about social media. He says, I've never been about living my life for others. I think the question that I would pose to him is for whom have you been living your right, life? Right. Because if you've been a person in high profile Christian leadership and you have not been living your life for an audience of one all the way along, if you've not been living your life For Christ, in Christ, um, you know, for the glory of God, toward the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, then you have been doing this for yourself all along. Yeah, and it, that's really troubling.
3: It is troubling. And that, you know, there's a couple things about that, Carmen, quickly. One is the cascading effect that kind of statement will have to many people that he influences as a person of influence, position and power. There's going to be a lot of people with re- that resonate with that. So to, to look for the cascading effect of people saying, yeah, I want to live my life on my own. And especially when, as you've rightly pointed out, it taps into the spirit of our age, does it not? In terms of mm. this life is about me. So there is sort of this catalytic moment that we're experiencing experiencing where you have these church leaders saying these things and it's tapping in to the actual spirit of the age and i think we better get in front of this a little bit more than just dismissing people but begin to thoughtfully address what's happening here so that we can create a different pathway moving forward
0: i feel like that's what you and i are seeking to do every single uh, every single week that we have the opportunity to talk so peter kapsner thank you so much for what you're doing hey thanks everybody uh, for listening to us today on mornings with carmen we'll take one more quick break and wrap it up So let me encourage you today, do not be afraid to ask your very honest questions. God can handle those. God is big enough uh, to handle those questions, and and God is real, and Jesus is true. This is the place of goodness, beauty, and truth, and it's not Christianity as a religion. It is about a relationship restored in Jesus Christ to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are talking about. That is the redemptive narrative that we are um, each and every one a part of and advocating the advancement of every single day. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.